Hi there, I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, KLW's weekly music show dedicated to exploring the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. Thanks for joining me this evening. There's nothing quite like a great show tune, but composers who write for the musical theatre stage are often faced with a challenge. How can you write a song that sticks in people's minds for days after they've seen your production without resorting to the tired techniques and clanking cliches that are so often mistaken for the stuff of memorable melodies? To help answer this question and many more, I'm lucky to have in the studio with me this evening one of the most original composers for the musical theatre stage I've ever come across, Dave Malloy. Hello Dave, thanks for dropping into the studio tonight. Hello, thank you, my pleasure. Dave used to be based in the Bay Area, but now he lives in New York, where he spends his time writing music for, and often performing in, some of your less run-of-the-mill stage projects. Dave's co-creation of and performance in Three Pianos, a meditation on Schubert's famous Winterreise song cycle, recently entranced New York audiences in its off-Broadway run at the New York Theatre Workshop. And local audiences will be familiar with his work as a composer and performer on productions like Beowulf, A Thousand Years of Baggage, which was initially produced by Shotgun Players before it headed to New York for an off-Broadway run. Dave is currently in town working on a new show, also under the auspices of Shotgun Players. I'll ask him about that in a bit. But first, here are a couple of Dave's songs from Beowulf, A Thousand Years of Baggage, The Battle and Grendel's Death. Let us recount what occurred there that night in that mead hall. What brought that beast down in that mead hall? That great fight. Okay, you see, here are the steps. Step one. Grendel the devil beast bashes and crashes me hard. Architecture upturns tables and chairs, which upsets the men. Mama, he ripped off my arm And Mama, he schooled me good And Mama, he battered me bad so If you've just joined us, hello. On tonight's Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman, here on KALW, I'm in the studio with music theatre composer Dave Malloy. We're talking about how songsmiths write knockout show tunes. And we just heard two tracks from Beowulf, A Thousand Years of Baggage, a stage work that Dave wrote a few years ago. The songs were entitled The Battle and Grendel's Death. So Dave, for us out here who don't necessarily know the Beowulf legend on which your musical is based, can you tell us, first of all, what Beowulf is about? 
Uh, sure. Yeah, Beowulf is uh, the one of the oldest stories around. It's like the first piece of uh, existing thing in, in the English language, I guess, and actually in Old English. Um, but basically, it's a story about this uh, hero, Beowulf, and there's this uh, mead hall that's being besieged by this beast, Grendel, and he, Grendel's coming and murdering all of the, the warriors uh, at the mead hall for 14 years, and until one night Beowulf comes and decides that he's going to take care of this monster, and so that night he stays awake, and uh, they have an epic battle. And Beowulf rips off Grendel's arm, and Grendel's ar- Grendel goes running back to his mother and dies with his mother. And then the next night, the mother comes and attacks as well. And then Beowulf uh, defeats the mother in an epic underwater battle. And then it goes on for a while, and he becomes king. And uh, by the end of it, he uh, there's a big dragon battle at the end. But it's basically just an epic warrior hero kind of story. Very good. Now, what's going on in the musical when the songs we just heard happen? So those those two songs actually they make a really nice pair. Um, the the battle, the first song we heard is actually the the battle between Beowulf and Grendel, which is kind of like the 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 quintessential piece of Beowulf. It's the thing that most people. That's like what they read up to, and then they usually stop when they're especially <laughs> when they're reading in high school. So that's yeah. actually where he, uh, you know, he gets his arm torn off, which the the narrator is kind of depicting for us. And then immediately after that, we go to uh, to Grendel's actual death scene, where he sings that thing with the little duop harmony behind it, the kind mm-hmm. of Elvisy kind of thing. And then uh, then his mother sings a lament. Yeah. So just weeping over her dead son. Okay. Now, when we were listening just now, my producer Seth and I, the first uh, song we said, oh that sounds a lot like Kurt Vile. And then the yeah. second song, Seth said, oh, were you influenced by Queen? Mm-hmm. You get, do you get that a lot? And, and what, how, how, what about the, these influences? Do they, I mean, do you consider them influences or are they just sort of things that percolate into your writing without you realizing? Yeah, it's more the latter. I mean, definitely the, the way I listen to music is very um, eclectic and I, I pretty much just keep iTunes on shuffle 24 hours a day. So I'm just constantly listening to tons and tons and tons of, of different kinds of music. So, I mean, I've certainly heard Kurt Vile and I've certainly heard Queen. Neither of those were, um, you know, conscious decisions to be emulating those two. But, um, but I, I think that the, the, those two both have a. There are things of those those kinds of music that I like a lot. Kurt Vile has this very kind of minor kind of. Um, edgy, rough kind of raw quality. Which suits a battle scene very well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually feel like Tom Waits is probably closer for me as a, as a conscious influence. Oh, okay. And I feel like Tom Waits is very influenced by Kurt Vile. Right. So I'm, it's a lineage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you and your collaborators on Beowulf call the piece a song play rather mm. than a musical. Now, why do you use that term? That was the product of a very long internal debate amongst us all. Um, actually, when we first decided to write Beowulf, we, our original intention was to write an opera. And okay. that was kind of how we thought of it in our heads. Okay, we're going to write an opera based on Beowulf. But then as we actually started making the piece, um, there was just an awful lot of text. Um, and so for me, you know, as someone like I'm, 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 I'm the person in the company who kind of went to music school and like, you know, studied opera or whatever. For me, like this, the, the song to dialogue ratio got out of whack enough that I couldn't really call it an opera anymore. <laughs> Whereas the other people in our company were like, oh, but it's so serious and epic. I think we still can call it opera. And I'm like, no, I think really technically this is more of a musical. And that's when the other people in the company, because Banana Bag and Boss is a, you know, very downtown, edgy, experimental company, whatever. Banana Bag and Bodice is the name of the company that was working with Shotgun on this production. Okay. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, when the word musical started getting thrown around, uh, a lot of people in the company, and myself included, honestly, um, started to feel a little uncomfortable just because there's so many negative connotations that that word has. The word musical. Like, yeah, that I feel like don't really describe our work. Um, okay, all right. So from that, then we started looking at, well, what are some other words that people have used over the years? 
And song play actually Kurt Weil um, called some of his pieces uh, Zingspiels, yeah. which is German for basically song play. Um, so we kind of came up with that. So is your new musical Beardo also a song play? Tell us about it briefly. Uh, yeah, so Beardo is uh, actually an, another story about a, a big epic legend. Um, this is the story of Rasputin. Um, right. So Rasputin, the mad monk who kind of brought down the Romanov Empire, uh, in Russia, you know, around the 1910s or so. Uh-huh. So it's kind of, you know, following his story from from when he grew up in Siberia to like him actually infiltrating the castle and the influence he had on the Tsar and Tsarissa until his, and then he has a really epic death. He was uh, murdered in a really bizarre way. He was poisoned and then shot and then drowned. Yeah, and, he wouldn't yeah, die. He wouldn't die, exactly. And it's a song play or is it a musical or is it an opera? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, I think again, Jason and I really kind of like the word song play. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we capitalize it really weird. It's like capital S, capital P, but all one word. Um, so I think <laughs> I think there's something about that that just for us, um, it kind of makes it our own thing. And we feel like we don't have to follow the rules of musicals or the rules of operas. And hopefully we don't get those connotations as well. OK, now let's just zone in on this whole idea of musical for a second. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't like the word musical. It has negative connotations mm-hmm. for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's, what's your problem with musical? And many other yeah. people are fine with the word. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I guess I don't really have a problem with the word in and of itself. It's just that I feel like for, for myself, as someone who's writing these things that people call musicals, usually when you tell people that you're writing musicals, they their mind very immediately goes to a very specific kind of sound. And that sound is not a sound that I particularly like. And I feel like that's the sound that, you know, of like Elton John musicals or like the, the big musicals of today or like the sound that I feel like, you know, today is most encapsulated by glee. Like right. that kind of sound um, has come to be the musical theater sound. Okay, well, actually, now that we're talking about Glee, let's listen to two versions of the John Lennon song Imagine. The first we'll hear is the performance of a song by the composer himself from the Lennon Legend album. And then we'll hear the Glee cast version of the song, which comes from volume two of the Glee soundtrack. And I think if we listen to those two side by side, we'll see what the gleification of a song does and, 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 yes. and uh, <laughs> how that might relate to this idea of musical that you're talking about. KALW's Voice Box at 91.7 FM San Francisco. On tonight's show, we're exploring trends and anti-trends 
in writing songs for the musical theatre stage with theatre composer Dave Malloy. Now, we just heard two versions of the song Imagine. The first was the original, performed by the song's composer, John Lennon, of course. And then we heard the Glee cast version of the song. Now, Glee obviously isn't a musical. It's a TV show that features a lot of songs that are reconfigured in a musical theatre style because often the kids in the show get up and sing them on stage. So, Dave... um, What are we hearing in the Glee version of the song that makes it sound like it comes from this sort of musical theatre style that's so prevalent today and that you dislike so much? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I think what's most interesting to me is that, yeah, both of those, I mean, it's the exact same song. And so it's clearly not actually the songwriting. I think there are some really bad trends in songwriting for musical theatre too, which hopefully we'll we'll talk about later. But um, I think for me, the majority of it is the voice itself and just the manner of vocal performance that's going on. there's something so, to, to my ears, just artificial about the Glee version, and like they're, they're trying very hard to show us how they're emoting and to show us the emotion they're feeling. There's a lot of auto-tune too, I think. There, yeah, uh, yeah definitely, and, yeah, and actually the, the way it's mixed too. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. and they're very upfront in the mix as yeah. well, and um, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, and the auto-tuning tends to do this thing where it just kind of flattens everyone's voice into a, a kind of just generic kind of sound. Uh-huh. Whereas like Lennon is doing all these subtle, beautiful things, and like sometimes he's like barely supporting his voice at all, you know, and and, and when he does that, you believe him 100 percent i mean it's such a ridiculous song it's so optimistic and 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 absurd but coming from him the way he's delivering the lyrics you don't you know doubt him for a second you know Mm -hmm. it it seems so honest and to me like i feel like that might be maybe the crux of the matter is is honesty and the fact that musical theater is you know being performed by actors who make a living out of lying you know (laughs) um And I, I feel like that might be that might be more than anything the big difference between like the difference in vocal style between every other kind of music and musical uh-huh. theater. Um, huh. Very interesting. Well, we'll talk more about voices later. Let's chat a bit more though about the way that the uh, the version of that song, the Glee version, um, changed the way Lennon wrote the song in terms of instrumentation, mm. for example. What are you hearing in terms of the arrangement? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you said earlier was, um, yeah, it's just it's just easy cliche after easy cliche the slow the cello comes in and then the strings and um i think they heard like a was it was a weird like bell tree or something going on i feel like bell trees are very ubiquitous in this kind of music um yeah and there's just like a kind of lushness that's very i think quite easy to do but again just doesn't feel very honest or, or interesting or you know um challenging at all so why do you think this manner of producing songs is so popular I think it really works, <laughs> and that's and that's you know and that for me is is a big part of my my own internal conflict with with my love hate relationship for musicals. Because um, honestly, as a kid, you know, I grew up watching films like The Music Man or West Side Story and My Fair Lady, and I love them. I love them to this day, and I realize that other kids, you know, that were my age then are growing up on musical theater of today and probably having that same response because there is a lot of, you know, thought that goes into how can we make these songs really pull on people's heartstrings? You know, what are the musical tricks that that work? And it's, yeah, these kind of string lines and these kind of melodies really, really do those things. Is it hard for you to resist putting those into your own music? Uh, No, (laughs) it's it's quite... (laughs) Well, I guess. I mean, I mean if you're sometimes. thinking about, it, do you never feel I want to do something that's just going to be really popular and really fun? You know, I, I always force myself to do something a little different with that. Like, for I mean, I think actually, um, there's a song in in Beardo, which is running right now, um, that I think I, I kind of wanted to write a very kind of old school Broadway. It's just a it's a love song. 
Um, and it's almost like a little bit of a country western kind of Patsy Cline song. But as I was writing, I'm just like, oh, I just can't do this. It's too, it's too easy. So I decided to put it in five. And I think just <laughs> that that little twist on it just makes it a little bit on the edge enough that um that it feels different to me. Yeah. This is Voice Box on KLW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. This is Voicebox on KLW. I'm chatting tonight with the New York-based indie musical theatre composer Dave Malloy. We're talking about trends in the songwriting for the musical theatre stage and how composers can write musicals without resorting to cliches. We just heard sections from three songs that pretty much epitomise musical theatre writing today in their ways. The first track was Seasons of Love from Rent, as performed by the original Broadway cast from 1996. And then we heard a part of that from Jason Robert Brown's 2001 musical, The Last Five Years. The performers were Sherry Rennes-Scott and Norbert Leo Butts. <laughs> and finally, we heard the great torch song from Stephen Schwartz's Wicked, Defying Gravity, as performed by Adina Menzel. Dave, can you put your finger on what it is about these songs and millions of others out there on stages and cast albums today that screams contemporary American musical at us? Mm. <laughs> yeah, so much. Um, I mean, I, I think that I, I'm really glad that we chose those three songs because I feel like they kind of follow three specific kind of worlds of contemporary musical theater. Um, I think, you know, Rent's 
kind of what uh, defined the modern rock musical. And so, um, you know, that's where you have these kind of real rock tropes, you know, rock drum playing, rock bass lines. Um, but again, being sung by musical theater people and, you know, in that particular song being sung by a choir of musical theater people in a way that it would just never happen in a rock song. So I think, you know, that that's a big part of that. Um, then Stephen Schwartz, I feel like, is like this other strand, which is you know, still has a little bit of a rock pop influence, but it also is very much coming more from the kind of classical lush world. I think the orchestrations are just a little lusher in him. Um, and for me, yeah, a little more, just more cheesy and more Disneyfied. Um, to me, it, to me, like the thing that really screams musical theater in that piece in particular is the the orchestration of it. You know, uh-huh. the synthesizers that you hear, there's a, those sliding guitars that we hear, there's bell trees, uh-huh. there's just all these, these terrible sounds. <laughs> um, and then I think the the Jason Robert Brown, I think actually more than anything lyrically kind of represents uh, a, a real trend in modern musical theater where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're singing about things that you would talk about and you're throwing in references to Leave It to Beaver and to Doritos and, and using the names of the characters in the songs throughout. Um, and, and also, I mean, the other thing that struck me when listening to that one was just the very clearly studio musician kind of vibe that was going on like it's very much these very very polished accomplished performances on the on for, on the instrumentalist part um, which to me speaks reeks of musical theater yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. well of course musicals didn't always sound like rent and wicked a few decades ago they sounded more like this Why do they think up stories that link my name with yours? Why do the neighbors gossip all day behind their doors? I have a way to prove what they say is quite untrue. Here is the gist of practical list of don'ts for you. Don't throw at me don't please my folks too much on tonight's voice box i'm chatting with theater composer dave malloy we're talking about compositional techniques and trends in writing songs for the musical theater stage we just heard people will say we're in love from oklahoma by rogers and hammerstein the singers were alfred drake and joan rogers from the original new york cast recording Dave, musicals seem to go through different trends in terms of how composers have approached writing songs for the stage over various periods of history. Oklahoma was first produced on Broadway in 1943, and the song we just heard is obviously completely different from the kinds of songs that composers are writing for the stage today. Can you tell us about what's going on in the song we just heard from a songwriting point of view? Uh, yeah, from a songwriting point of view, it's it's it has a lot in common with pretty much every other piece of popular music that was being written at that time. You know, right. so we start off with a verse, and then we have a just very simple A A B A form, and it's um every phrase is eight bars long. The chord changes are you know quite predictable, and you know you could throw that song in front of a million jazz musicians today, and they'd all be able to play it you know at the drop of a hat. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and uh, one thing I was thinking of that I think you know. I think obviously the, the music of the stage has always kind of followed what's going on in popular music at the time. But there came a point when, um, I think with rock and roll, basically, when music in general, like recorded music, became very much more performer based. You mm-hmm. know, that, um, like when the Beatles, like the Beatles, are the, the four musicians are the Beatles and they're the ones playing the music. Whereas if you have like, you know, Peggy Lee or Frank Sinatra, they're playing behind a giant orchestra that's full of basically studio musicians. And I think there gets a point when rock and roll, when it really is 
much more about the performers playing it than it is about the actual songwriting itself. I see. And okay. I think that's where musical theater has gone wrong <laughs> um, for, <laughs> for me. Because when you try to get a bunch of you know studio musicians and uh, musical theater actors to sing like rock stars, um, it's just a recipe for disaster because they're not rock stars and they don't they don't sound like that. Where I don't think you had that problem with Oklahoma because um, you know I mean I don't think that song sounds much different than uh, a Peggy Lee recording or Frank Sinatra recording from the same era. It's the same vocal technique. It's the same type of instrumentation. It's the same type of songwriting. Yeah. So have composers at this point more or less rejected the songwriting techniques of 20th century golden age of Broadway musicals by the likes of Rodgers and Hammerstein, or are there elements of contemporary writing that still draw on lessons learned from the composers of yore? Oh, I think for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone you know, writing in this field is aware of the, the long tradition, you know, that there is in the past. And uh, people are definitely always drawing on that and adding new things in. Mm-hmm. Can sure. you point to any particular elements that you'd still, I mean, like this like AABA mm-hmm. form that you talked about? I mean, is that still Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think that's definitely, definitely still going on. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think Sondheim is a really interesting uh, person to, to think about in this regard because he actually very rarely does an AABA form. I think one thing that people talk about with Sondheim a lot is how he doesn't really have any songs you know like he doesn't really write these hit songs like you, you can count his hit songs on, on on one hand because he he pushes against that so much but i think you know i think he's actually the exception in that i think you know most of the musicals coming out these days have pretty clear-cut song forms from time to from in for the most part <laughs> well actually we have a stephen sondheim song to play now mm-hmm. um Let's think a little bit about Sondheim here. We'll play, first of all, the song Here's Your Fault from the revival recording of the uh, 1986 musical Into the Woods, and then we'll have a little chat about Sondheim's songwriting technique. It's because of you there's a giant in our midst and my wife is dead! But it isn't my fault. I was given those beans. You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans. So without those beans, there had been no stock to get up to the giants in the first place. Wait a minute. Magic beans for a cow so old that you had to tell a lie to sell it, which you told. Were they worthless beans? Were they oversold? Who until us who persuaded you to steal that gold? See, it's your fault. No. So it's your fault. No. Yes, it is. It's not. It's true. Wait a minute. Though I only stole the gold to get my cow back from you. So it's your fault. Yes. No, it isn't. I'd have kept those beans, but our house was cursed. She made us get the cow to get the curse reversed. It's your father's fault that the curse got place and the place got cursed in the first place. Oh, then it's his fault. So it was his fault. No, yes, it is. It's his. I guess. Wait a minute. Do I chop them? This is KLW's Voice Box. Tonight, composer Dave Malloy is with me for a conversation about trends in musical theatre songwriting and how people have set trends and reacted against them. We just heard Your Fault from Stephen Sondheim's 1986 musical Into the Woods. Now, Dave, uh, you know, to me, to my mind, what we just heard, like so much of Sondheim's music, it doesn't even sound particularly like a song in mm-hmm. the strictest sense of the word. But what does the track illustrate about Sondheim's approach to songwriting? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what Sondheim did did and and I have I again I have a very strange love hate relationship with Sondheim. I mean, there's parts of me that just are absolutely uh, gleeful about the virtuosity of that track we just listened to. Um, I think what Sondheim did was he kind of pushed against that idea of okay, it's an AABA form, everything has to be eight bars, everything has to rhyme, and he just said, well, what if I just took a giant piece of dialogue and set it to music? And like you know that that piece still definitely rhymes. But formally, it's all over the place. You know, there's just all these kind of repeated patterns, but it's not in any strict like verse chorus bridge structure at all. Um, 
Yeah, so I think I think he's really playing with that idea of uh, what kind of text can be set to music and, and what does that do to the music. I mean, Sondheim is notoriously difficult to play and sing because he uses all these crazy time signatures and everything because he is really fitting the music to the words as opposed to the other way around. Hmm, okay. And in your writing, do you fit music to words or the other way around? Or uh, I. I definitely do. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one thing that I'm really blessed with in, in my writing is to be working with this writer, Jason Craig, who did Beowulf and Beardo, and, and we've done a bunch of other shows together. And um, he is the epitome of an anti-musical lyricist. Like, he really doesn't write musical theater lyrics at all. Um, his lyrics, you know, rarely rhyme and, and rarely scan in any kind of uh, regular rhythmic way. And I feel like that's actually just such a, a blessing for me because I get, it challenges me to really write things outside of those those strict forms and to... Yeah, to, to fit the music to, the, to those words. Well, unlike you, it seems like a lot of composers out there today are still, you know, pretty much trying to imitate, well, Rent, frankly, <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the whole um, style of musical theatre writing that, that came out of, came out of uh, Rent in terms of following the whole the rock aesthetic and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think Rent with, with little pieces of Schwartz and Sondheim mixed in is pretty much what you... Has become the formula? Yeah, is what you kind of hear today. Okay. I mean, there are, of course, exceptions too, and I feel like yeah, you know, those we'll three pieces... we'll get to those oh, as well. <laughs> but one could argue that Rent was in its day an act of musical rebellion in itself mm-hmm. against the epics from the previous decade, like Les Miserables and Phantom mm. of the Opera. So um, here's an example of what Rent was reacting against on my own from Les Mis, composed in 1980 by French composer Claude-Michel Schoenberg with a French language libretto by Alain Boublil. Now I'm all alone again, nowhere to turn, no one to go to. Without a home, without a friend, without a face to say hello to. But now the night is near, and I can make believe he's here. Sometimes I walk alone at night when everybody else is sleeping. I think of him and then I'm happy with the company I'm keeping. The city goes to bed and I can live inside. This is Voice Box and that was On My Own from the original Broadway cast recording of Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Boublil's Les Miserables. This evening, theatre composer Dave Malloy is on hand for a discussion about writing for the musical theatre stage. Dave, can you give us some pointers about what we just heard? How is it, musically speaking, different from the writing that we heard earlier in Rent, for example? Yeah, I think with you know, with with um, you know, with Les Mis and Miss Saigon and Phantom of the Opera and all those kind of big musicals of the '80s, there was um, a. a yeah, they definitely weren't as interested in rock music, I think, in, in those scores. And I think they're really more looking at themselves in the operatic tradition. And so I think the music is just a little more serious and, um, yeah, just more epic in scope. I mean, I think the stories themselves are, are a big part of that. You know, Les Mis is about the French Revolution and Rent is about, you know, a bunch of people living in the East Village. So I mean, it's a really, <laughs> really, really different in, in scope. But Rent is sort of based on La Boheme, which is an opera. So. Certainly it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, true that. <laughs> but it, but it, yeah, of course, it's a different dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I mean, yeah, the vocal styling that we just heard as well. I mean, I know that's one that really grates on. Yeah, actually, I mean, yeah, it's it's funny well, that, that we that we listen to that. I mean, so Les Mis is is one of those shows that I it was actually the first musical that I ever saw as a kid, uh-huh. and so uh, it it was very 
influential to me and I actually do love that score in a lot of ways but that particular recording we just heard I just find appalling and again I think it's because of the vocalist um, because I think that particular musical style in which she's singing is is so artificial to me yeah. and she's throwing in all these weird inflections and things it's very and, um, affected very affected yeah and so let's listen to a different version of the song right now of On My Own um, the startling difference in the type of vocal quality will really change how the song sounds this recording is from the uh, Les Mis 10th anniversary concert and the vocalist is Leah Salonga. And now I'm all alone again, nowhere to turn, no one to go to. Without a home, without a friend, without a face to say hello to. And now the night is near, now I can make believe he's here. Sometimes I walk alone at night when everybody else is of him and then I'm happy with the company I'm keeping the city goes to bed a version of On My Own from the 1980 musical Les Miserables performed by Leah Salonga for a concert performance marking the 10th anniversary of the musical here on Voicebox we're discussing trends in writing songs for the musical theatre stage with the New York based composer Dave Malloy Dave, how does the version of On My Own that we just heard with Leah Salonga differ from the one we heard just a bit before from the original Broadway cast recording? And what do the differences tell us about instrumentation and vocal quality mm-hmm. in musical theatre writing? Yeah, I, mean, I think for me the biggest difference is just the, the quality of the vocal performance. Um, with Leah Salonga singing it, I, I believe it and I love it and I just don't... Um, she doesn't add all those terrible affectations and little scoops and weird little emotive things to make us believe that she's the character. Um, she just lets her voice naturally do it. And um, that to me, it's, it's just why that, that recording is, is so much more beautiful to me. Um, I think the other big difference between the two recordings is the original Broadway one has a lot of synthesizers in it, mm-hmm. um, whereas the 10th anniversary one actually has a full orchestra playing. So the actual harp parts that you're hearing are played by a real harp in the second one and a, a fake harp, a MIDI harp in the first one. And um, that, too, I think just gives the second one so much more authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, What's it like for composers working today um, in, in an environment where maybe you don't have access to the same resources as maybe would have been possible in a better economy, for example? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not necessarily often that you get to write for a full sweeping orchestra these days. Sometimes you're stuck with synthesizers. I mean, how do you deal with that? I don't think you're ever stuck with synthesizers. I think, I mean, I, I definitely, yeah, I've never been able to write for a full orchestra, but because of that, I've never tried, you know, and I don't, yeah. I mean, I've never tried to emulate it with, with synthesizers. I mean, I, I occasionally use synthesizers in my work, but when it is, it's only to use them as a very specifically synthesizer sounds. I mean, I think actually that recording of The Battle that mm-hmm. we heard earlier um, does have a synthesizer in it, but it's doing things that no real instrument can possibly do. They're very electronic based sounds. Um, I feel like, yeah, as, as a composer, like I always think about, you know, well, what are the resources available to me for this show and how can I make that as exciting as possible? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've done shows that were scored for just like harmonicas because that's all <laughs> that was available. And that was, you know, and I could have I could have scored that same show for just piano. Yeah. Um, but harmonicas was a lot more interesting than, uh-huh. just, than just piano. And your new show, Beardo, is mm-hmm. interesting because you actually hire, you have a whole choir of 30 or 40 
people mm-hmm. that, that are singing on stage. Can you talk a bit about writing for that group and why? Why did you decide to stick a choir up there for this uh, this production all about um, Rasputin? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the, the choir sings uh, just, just one piece in the number and they kind of represent the people of Russia. And it comes after we send a, a long time inside the Tsar and Tsarista's palace and kind of dealing with the problems of the aristocracy and seeing all these people on the inside. And it's just kind of a reminder that actually there's this entire nation of Russia going on as well. Um, yeah, that was really exciting. Uh, Shotgun Players just has a, a really huge community behind them. So actually the choir is all volunteer, which mm-hmm. is which is wonderful. And uh, it was, yeah, it's totally thrilling to be able to write for that that large of an ensemble. It's a, it's a real treat. So thinking more about voices here, I know that um, you're a big fan, Dave, of using voices on stage, like, for example, choristers that aren't necessarily your typical trained musical theatre voices mm-hmm. with a big belt and tons of very nasal yeah. <laughs> vibrato. So I thought it would be a great idea now on your suggestion to play this song from the original album recording of uh, the Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim mm. Rice musical Jesus Christ Superstar. The song is going to be Judas's death and the performance is interesting because it's quite unlike subsequent recordings of the musical and, and stagings um can you tell us a bit about what we're going to hear in terms of the quality of the voices yeah i mean th- this is one of my favorite musical theater recordings of all time and i think the the big difference is is that this this piece was originally um uh, thought of as just a, a rock concept album it actually wasn't until years later that the stage production happened and so this is basically just like a bunch of, you know, people in London at the time, like a bunch of like really great psychedelic rock musicians getting together and performing this amazing score that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote. Um, so you get these singers who are real rock singers and they're just doing a recording in the studio. So they're doing it one time. So they really just go for broke and they're shredding their voices apart. And uh, it's so exciting to me. Yeah. And also the, the musicians themselves. I mean, it's a real rock band. You know, it's not studio musicians playing eight Broadway shows a week. It's like guys who love to do this and they get such amazing sounds. Especially, I think, if you listen to the, uh, the guitar work in the beginning, there's some really cool effects that he's doing that you just wouldn't hear on a Broadway stage. My God, I saw him. He looked he caught as dead. And he was so bad, I had to turn my head. You beat him so hard that he was bent and lame. And I know who everybody's going to blame. I don't believe he knows I acted for our good. I'd save him all this suffering if I could. Don't believe our good. Save him if I could. Cut the confessions, forget the excuses. I don't understand why you're filled with remorse. All that you've said has come true with a vengeance. The mob turned against him. You're listening to Voicebox on KLW. We just heard Judas's Death from the original album recording of Jesus Christ Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. These guys created a rock musical in 1971 and used real rock singers and instrumentalists as their original performers rather than musical theatre singers. I'm chatting with stage composer Dave Malloy about trends in songwriting for musicals. Now we've sort of gone down a side alley with this interesting discussion about vocal quality as it relates to the performance of songs. Let's return now to talking some more about compositional techniques and styles, Dave. We started discussing um, how so many musical theatre composers follow a formula and they go for whatever standard of the time they're writing is the popular one 
But musical theatre history is full of composers who pushed against the status quo and tried new things, such as yourself, Dave. Mm. Here's a, a couple of tracks from envelope-pushing musicals that refused to pander to the most obvious tastes of their time. First, we'll hear Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof, a musical from 1964 with music by Jerry Bock, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick and book by Joseph Stein. And then we'll hear The Song of Purple Summer from Spring Awakening with music by Duncan Sheik and a book and lyrics by Stephen Sater. The musical was a huge hit a few years ago. Tradition. 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 Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, how to wear clothes, for instance. And I shall fade the flowers of spring. Still it stays The butterfly sings And opens purple summer With the flutter of its wings The Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof followed by the song of purple summer from Spring Awakening. On tonight's edition of Voicebox, theatre composer Dave Malloy is with me, Chloe Veltman, in the studio for a conversation about how composers follow and break from songwriting standards when it comes to writing for the musical theatre stage. Dave, how do the songs we just heard and the musicals they come from in general push against cliches that were or even still are prevalent in songwriting for musicals? Well, I think, you know, starting with Fiddler, I think Fiddler is such a great example of a show that just uses a totally separate musical style. It's not in a musical theater style. Like, it's definitely just, you know, singing. It's uh, traditional Jewish music, like traditional klezmer music. and Yeah, and it's beautiful, and it's so original, and like, and it's one of the most enduring musicals of all time, I think, because the music is so is so special, and it mm-hmm. like, comes from this very specific genre of music. And I think there are other shows, you know, through the years that have done the same thing. I think Candor and Ebb do that with jazz really well. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so it just kind of shows you that you don't have to have that specific sound, that mm-hmm. so those specific chord progressions, those specific harmonies, that kind of orchestration. I mean, I think even the orchestration we heard in that is really interesting. Like you have this solo fiddle, you know, which it's is it's a very um, spare texture. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's lovely, and you know, and it, and it speaks to the the peasants that they're talking about and all that. Um, Spring Awakening for me is, is it's a harder sell. I think Spring Awakening is. Is is gets a lot right, but it still definitely sounds to my ear like musical theater. I think what what was exciting to me about hearing Spring Awakening was um, hearing kind of indie rock influences in there. Like when I hear that, I, I kind of hear like like Will Oldham in that, or like Fleet Foxes, like you know really cool, um, kind of freak folk indie rock bands of today. 
Um, and I think harmonically he's doing some really cool things as well that kind of push against the usual harmonies you hear. Uh-huh. Like, for example? Can, well, I think, you know, I think actually the, what we heard earlier, the Stephen Schwartz's Wicked, um, mm-hmm. um, the Defying Gravity, has to me what is the, the quintessential sound of musical theater, which is the two chord. Mm-hmm. So it's a chord that, you know, like based on a C, it'd be like a C, a D energy instead mm-hmm. of a C, an E energy. Mm-hmm. So there's no third in the chord. It's just this kind of very suspended kind of sound. And um, musical theater composers love them and they mm-hmm. use them all the time. Um, there's a bit of that in Spring Awakening, but I think in Spring Awakening he's also using lots of really interesting like minor four chords and like minor six chords and um, that, you know, to my ear, just really exciting and unusual. Okay. So more broadly, how would you say you've evolved as a composer for the stage? What are the main things you've learned along the way so far? Mm. <laughs> Other than don't hire people trained to sing, in right? I mean, I think, I think really that's one of the most important lessons is is you know just pick your cast really carefully and um, you know I, I, again I've I've had the the good fortune to come you know to be around a lot of really amazing performers and and singers who don't have that traditional musical theater voice and have really amazing unique voices and so working with those people again and again and writing for their voices, I think has been a, a big lesson, like, you know, writing for the resources that you have. And I think that's true with instrumentation too, you know, like deciding, well, what are, what's available to me um, and how can we make that work? I mean, actually Beowulf, one of the, the most unique things for me about that score is that there are two trombones in it. And the way that actually came about was originally it was scored for just one trombone, but you know we couldn't find someone to do the entire show, so we had two people trading on and off for the first run of it, and they were both so good that when it came time to move the show to New York, when they both wanted to do it, and I wanted them both to do it, so I said, okay, I'll just rewrite the score for two trombones instead. And um, okay, and it was revolutionary, and I feel like it's 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 now the core of the of the music is that that sound of these two dueling trombones. Well, the hour is almost over, mm. and as usual, it's gone by super quick. Um, I'd like to say a resounding thank you to tonight's special guest, composer Dave Malloy, for taking a break from his hectic production schedule to join me tonight. Thanks, Dave. It's been marvellous chatting with you. It's been all my pleasure. Thank you. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and the membership and development director is John Bischoff. Voicebox can only exist with support from you, our listeners. So to find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make that much-needed tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and, best of all, tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Voicebox is now available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org. And if you like what you hear, please send us a donation. And please also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, we'll be delving into the world of opera translations. How do opera companies come up with effective ways to make libretti written in foreign languages both singable and readable when translated into English? I'll be joined in the studio by two special guests, Mary McLaughlin, an assistant professor of French and linguistics at UC Berkeley, and Donald Pippin, the founder and director of San Francisco's Pocket Opera. So please tune in next Friday at 91.7 FM from 10 till 11 p.m. I'd like to play us out with one more song by tonight's guest, Dave Malloy. Here's Samson from his musical Clown Bible. Have a songful week. I'm Samson and I'm crazy. I'm Samson and I'm crazy. I'm Samson and I'm crazy. No, 
Drinking wine, I want her 